Hello, church. If you would open to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7. I'm going to read verse 29 to 35, but we will cover uh, and, and read most of the rest of this chapter as the sermon goes. Let's start in verse 29. This is the Word of God. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as if they had none. And those who mourn as if they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as if they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as if they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. And I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the, the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And so, Lord, that's the fruit that I pray over myself and everyone here that would come from your word and the study of your word this morning. Undivided devotion to the Lord, that whether single or married, that Lord, we would steward these callings toward an undivided devotion to the Lord. Lord, help us to understand what you've said here in your word. Give us understanding, be our teacher. But Lord, please do not let us be hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Lord, we pray for every single and every married that we would go out from here obeying and believing everything You've said. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the 11th and final uh, sermon in this marriage uh, series for the last few months. As many of you know, um, we have been seeing marriage as not just one topic in the Bible among many topics, but as the grand meta narrative, the whole, um, the the one of the main or or central ways in which the whole biblical storyline unfolds, uh, so that the world starts with a marriage and it ends with a marriage, and and this is central to our understanding of all of the Bible. And so the whole aim of this series has been restoring the glory back to marriage that for many of us has been lost uh, in our day. And we haven't done this by just doing kind of topical studies on different topics related to marriage. What we've done is we've tried to take uh, exposition, an expositional approach looking at every primary passage that the Bible has on marriage and working through those in their historical grammatical context, working through those in the literary genre, in which they're presented to us. So history, law, poet, pro, uh, proverbs, apocalyptic and prophetic visions, uh, the Gospels and the letters. And so today we come to a new uh, category uh, in which to view marriage. Uh, this is going to be an interesting one. It's a Q&A session. It's a question and answer with the Apostle Paul. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.1, look at it. Now concerning the matters in which you wrote. So they've written some questions to Paul, uh, specifically on the topic of singleness and marriage, and now he's responding to these questions. This is somewhat, um, you might compare this to the Socratic method, uh, a very effective teaching method, um, where you have a Q&A type dialogue, uh, something we try to do in city groups, something we, we seek to do. We've done it in the men's internships a lot. Tonight, we're going to do a Q&A on marriage uh, at, the, at the evening service. Uh, we do this in video form sometimes. 
And, and we're not following Plato's methodology. Uh, we're not even really following Paul's. Paul is following Jesus' methodology. Because Jesus uh, did much of his teaching in a question and answer format. In fact, we saw it last week in Matthew 19. Uh, the, the Pharisees came to him and, and they said what? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason? And then Jesus teaches and answers their question. And then it provokes another question. And then he answers that question. And then it provokes another question. And he answers that question. And a lot of the teaching in the Bible is monologue, a sermon or a lecture, that gives birth to dialogue or a question and answer session. Well, what about this scenario? Or here's my situation. How does it apply here? And, and there's confusion in the church in Corinth at this time. Uh, people have entered into the church. Some of them are saying things like, true purity can only happen when you forsake marriage. Maybe take a vow of celibacy. And, um, you know, that would later that teaching would go on to the hermits and the monks and, and many uh, who took on a, a monastic lifestyle the, uh, or, or the nuns in the Catholic Church and, and things like this. Um, others were saying that true that, that marriage is the only way to be a, a godly adult. If you want to be a godly adult, you must get married. And so what Paul doesn't do with all these competing uh, views, he doesn't just say, hey guys, the Bible's already spoken on this, just go back and read it. Nothing for me to say. Um, he answers questions. In fact, verse 25, he says, I have no command from the Lord. So he says, I'm not going to quote Jesus verbatim here. But I give my own judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And so he, Paul, sees himself as a trustworthy spokesman for God as an inspired author. And so he says, I'm not quoting Jesus at every point here. I'm going to say some things that are my own judgment, but I'm trustworthy. I'm an inspired author. Uh, you should listen to what I have to say. And so here, here's what I, I want to... I want to see chapter 7 uh, with this theme. Marriage, singleness, in the eschaton. Marriage and singleness uh, in the eschaton. Eschaton meaning that final stage of the world, the last days uh, before the uh, consummation, we would call it, when Christ returns to get His bride and take her to the eternal kingdom. Uh, what does marriage and singleness look like in the eschaton? Before the consummation. Uh, Paul is essentially saying you need to view everything in light of the brevity of life. How short and passing uh, life is. You, you need to have this very uh, narrow view of how you look at marriage. That soon the consummation, the coming of Christ, the final judgment and eternal state will come. And you need to factor that into how you view marriage and singleness. So he's forcing them to look past their current uh, marital issues. So look at verse 29 again. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as if they had none. And those who mourn as if they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as if they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as if they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For, or you could say, because... The present form of this world is passing away. Um, this is why Jonathan Edwards uh, used to say something like this, uh, we must stamp eternity on our eyeballs so that we can literally view everything in light of eternity. And that's what Paul's telling them to do. So I want to see three categories here. Uh, so marriage, singleness, and the eschaton will be in all three of these. But in each of these, I want to see something different. Purity, contentment, and then lastly, faith. So we'll look at marriage, singleness, and eschaton in all three sections, but separately we'll take purity, contentment, and faith. Let's look at purity first. Um, if there's anything that's clear in, in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, it is that Paul is very, very, very concerned with this church's sexual purity. I mean, there's just no way to read this letter and not think that that is a central concern of his with this church. 
Um, In fact, listen to the warning in chapter 6, verse 9. It says, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he comforts believers and he says, such were, past tense, some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So he says, because you've been washed and purified, live like it. In other words, here's what he's really saying. Don't be divided. Don't be double-minded. Don't mix uh, light and darkness. Because that's what an impure Christian does. They're divided. They're serving the Lord one minute and they're serving themselves or their sinful desires the next minute. There's a dividedness. Look at verse 35 again. I say this for your own benefit to, it says, secure your what? Undivided devotion to the Lord. That's what purity is. Undivided devotion to the Lord. The Lord, guys, if if Christ has purchased you with His blood, if He is returning to take you back to glory, He deserves all of you. Your undivided self, your whole self, must be given to Christ. Not a double-minded, a half-hearted worshiper, you know, praising God one minute, uh, serving self the next, giving yourself to your wife one minute, giving yourself to another the next minute. This is his concern for them. He says in chapter 7, verse 14, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? As it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And so his aim in all of this with with purity is an undivided devotion to the Lord, to, as as it says in Romans uh, 12.1, offer your body as a living sacrifice of worship. That's what worship is. It's not just singing songs. It's offering your body as a living sacrifice of worship to the Lord. And and here's the connection I want to make. That's what marriage is too. Marriage is an offering yourself fully to your spouse, not in an idolatrous way, but offering yourself to them physically and sexually and to them alone. That's what that's what marriage is. Uh, many of you have read that book by uh, Tim Keller and Kathy Keller on marriage. And um, they, they mention in there uh, about how they would do counseling sessions with couples. And couples would come to them uh, for marriage counseling, going through difficult things. And their, little, their primary little homework thing that they would do with couples is they would say, uh, well, what we want you to do is, is go home and don't come see us for two weeks. But every night, we want you to come together sexually. Not seeking to please yourself, but only your spouse. Do that every time, every night, for the next two weeks, and then come back and see us. And then the couple uh, would come back, and they said this was very common that, they would, that the couple would say, that drastically changed our marriage. Uh, and... and uh, that may sound shocking to some here uh, that, that they would give that type of counsel to couples, but what they're actually doing is saying the exact same thing Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7. What does it say in verse 2? Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Listen, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, not privileges, rights. Likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
do not deprive one another. What's he saying? He's saying in marriage, you actually don't have autonomy and authority over your own body. Your wife does. And wife, you don't have autonomy and authority over your own body. Your husband does. Now, someone may say, well, but I want autonomy and authority over my own body. Well, and I would say, well, then you don't want to be a Christian. Because as Christians, we don't have authority and autonomy over our own bodies. That's what it means to be a Christian. You die, and Christ lives. You surrender all rights to yourself over to the Lord. That's what he says. Your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body, which isn't really your body anymore. It's his temple. And so if, that, if we get that concept, is it that difficult to say, here's my body, spouse. It's not really mine. It's God's, and it's yours. That's the logic that Paul's giving these couples. And then he says, don't deprive one another. Because what, what, why would you say don't deprive one another? Well, because you could actually withhold from God and your spouse something that you don't have the authority to withhold. That isn't yours to withhold. And that would be a depriving. There is one contingency clause here. Uh, one permission, it says in verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time uh, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together, come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now I'm going to pause here because this is amazing what Paul's doing, all right? I just got to highlight this. Do you hear the discretion? the prudence, the purity, and how he's talking about this type of topic that's appropriate for a public worship setting. I mean, he's writing this to be read in churches with all ages of people, all genders of people. And it's appropriate, and it's prudent, and it's wise, and it's pure, and we should take note of that. And that's why I'm able to, to say these things uh, among us, because I'm following Paul's example some of y'all know back, you know, you could go back 10, 15 years ago, that it was trendy among churches for young pastors to talk about passages like this that maybe previous generations would have avoided, and they would talk about them in public settings, but they were uncomfortable about it. You could tell they were uncomfortable, and I think in order to maybe ease their nerves and the nerves of everybody else, they would make jokes, they would be crude, they would be inappropriate in ways that they would talk about these things, which the Bible does not uh, allow us to do it. It says, let there be no foolish talk or crude joking. Do not even speak of what they do in secret. So I'm, I'm just highlighting this because when you're in city group settings, when you're in family worship settings, when you're in the counseling room, when you're, when you're talking to other believers, we have examples on how to talk about these type topics in very pure and appropriate ways with discretion. And it, and it isn't appropriate. It's actually needed, especially for a, a church like the church of Corinth that lived in a sexualized culture. People need examples of how not to talk vulgar about these things. And Paul's giving us that example. Guys, look. Impurity is killing marriages. It is. It is. It's the elephant in the room of every sermon on almost anything that's in the background somewhere. It was in Corinth. He addresses it. We have to address this topic, especially in light of the type of culture we live in. And here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to give four ways to protect against sexual sin. Listen to the first. I'll just list these quickly. The first is church discipline. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he gives a whole chapter about removing the unrepentant, sexually immoral person from their midst. There are some people who identify as Christians who will not stop sinning sexually. They don't want to. They want to live in it. And Paul says, remove the leaven from among you. Because what you actually, where a church needs to get to is to the point where everybody who's in that church isn't perfectly pure, but they want to be. 
They want to be. And so the people who don't want to be are removed, he says. That's the first way you deal with sexual sin among Christians. Remove the people who don't want to be pure. Keep the people who want to be pure among you. Second, get married. Sometimes the most spiritual, godly, best thing you can say to somebody who's struggling with sexual sin is, find a spouse. It doesn't sound so spiritual maybe to some, but it's more spiritual than just try to love the Lord more, brother. You know, it, it is an appropriate time to just say, no, find a wife. Find a husband. Look at verse 2. This is what Paul says. It is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to, her, uh, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to the husband. Look at verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed or his, his, his uh, fiancé, if his passions are strong, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It is no sin. This is why... Um, this is why Augustine said that there's three purposes for marriage. Procreation, sacrament, is how he called it, to display Christ in the church, and purity. It's actually one of the primary purposes of marriage. And um, I know some of you, I'll just pick on the young men for a minute, may go, amen, pastor. That's, I like this idea. I would like a spouse. I would like a godly spouse. This would be a blessing. And I'm going to pass on something I heard John MacArthur say uh, to a young single man who asked a question uh, one time. This man said, uh, I've read 1 Corinthians 7, that if I'm struggling with purity, I should find a wife. I want to do that. What advice would you give to me? And then MacArthur said, one, don't assume that a young woman is going to want to marry you. Become the type man she would want to marry. And then two, he said, this is really interesting what he, what he said here. He, he said, uh, you are going to take on the role of Christ in the church. And as a man, you're going to take on the role of Christ. So you need to pursue a woman to be her savior, but not from her sin. You need to find a woman you can save from her loneliness, from her fruitlessness, that she won't be able to bear children, that she'll have certain longings for companionship and intimacy that can only be fulfilled in marriage. And so he says, as the Christ figure, seek to uh, save her from that loneliness and that fruitlessness, and in turn, you'll end up saving yourself from those same things. It's really profound uh, advice. And someone goes, well, amen, that's good, but until that happens, what do I do? Well, that leads to the third thing that I would put before us or that Paul does. He says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. And this is the best advice you can get from anybody on the issue of sexual sin is you don't stay around and fight it. You do that with all these other sins. You, you, you make war against them, but against the issue of sexual sin, the counsel is flee. Get out of the situation that's tempting. That's what Joseph does with Potiphar's wife. He just runs. You don't seek to do battle with this particular sin. You flee. Fourth, the gift of singleness may be a way to remain pure. The gift of singleness. Um, I, I'll point this out because I don't have time today to, to deal with this in depth. But if you want to read more on singleness, I would highly recommend John Piper's book called Momentary Marriage. He has two chapters on singleness uh, that, I, that I think are really good. And he's essentially showing how in the New Covenant, Paul has spiritual children uh, in order to fulfill the Great Commission and to fulfill the creation mandate through discipleship in the local church. Uh, he points out how Paul had companionship, a helper fit for him among the fellowship of believers that mitigated loneliness to some extent. 
And Piper explains even the prophecy, there's a really significant prophecy uh, about the new covenant in Isaiah 56, 4. It says, to the eunuchs, which would be a category of singleness, who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls, so in my kingdom, a monument, a name better than sons and daughters, a name better than biological children. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That's what uh, Matthew 18, or yeah, Matthew 19, what Jesus is talking about when he says, uh, there are eunuchs who have been, so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive it, receive it. Most haven't been able to receive it. <laughs> or they'll twist and distort what Jesus is even meaning there. Um, you know, the Middle Ages, the, you had the monastic movement with the monks, and then you had the Catholic Church with uh, priests and monks and nuns with their vows of celibacy. But listen, often and usually, without the Spirit-enabling part, like Paul had, or John the Baptist had, or John Stott, or Amy Carmichael, or many singles who had a gift of singleness, which you go, how do you know if you have a gift of singleness? Can you remain pure? If you can remain pure in your singleness, you have a gift. That's a spirit-enabled gift. If you can't remain pure, you aren't called to singleness, and you don't have the gift of singleness, and you should seek a spouse. So, let's let that drive us into this second point, which I think really becomes necessary in light of all of that. Marriage, singleness, and contentment, and the eschaton. Um, I, I have noticed over the years how Satan loves to whisper in the ears of singles, if you would only find a spouse, your life would be so much better. And how he loves to whisper in the ears of many struggling, uh, those struggling in their marriages, if you would only get free from this marriage, then your life would be better. And listen... For any, any of those who are single here, I think one of, the, one of the worst things, most foolish things a single person can do is look at a married couple and say, if I only had what they had, God has held that something good from me. Listen, that is very naive. It's very, unless you've walked a day in that person's shoes, you don't know if they're experiencing a blessing or not. You can't assume every marriage is a blessing. There's marriages that you, as a single person, you wouldn't want a, a day in their life. It's the hardest trial you would have ever gone through. Be careful envying something you know very little about. I think this is Paul's concern. In verse 28, he says, those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And listen to the glory of singleness here. The unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So here, here's how I would, I would explain this. There are certain glories to be experienced in marriage that cannot be experienced in singleness. And there are certain glories in singleness to be experienced that cannot be experienced in marriage. Additionally, there are troubles to be experienced in marriage that the single person avoids. And there are troubles in singleness that the married person avoids. But what often happens is the single will forget that the married person has certain trials connected to their marriage. And the married man will often forget that the single man has certain freedoms and blessings connected to their singleness. That's why it's a problem when a man gets married and then he keeps trying to live like he's single. Like he still has all the blessings of singleness. So he just does whatever he wants without regarding his kids or his wife. What do I want to do? Where do I want to work? What do I want to do after work? And he, everything is just 
about, he's thinking like a single man, not like a married man. And he's forgetting that at the wedding altar, he laid down all the blessings of singleness to take on the blessings of marriage. He laid down all the trials of singleness to take on the trials of marriage. But there's a difference between these two callings. That's why Paul keeps saying, live in the condition in which you're called until you're absolutely certain that he's called you into marriage. And until you're absolutely certain that he's called you out of a marriage. But divorce or remarriage, which is what I mentioned last week. There's a section here, verse 10, I think gets into what we would call Particularly difficult situations. So look at verse 10. It says, The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. I really believe that that is maybe the primary passage in the Bible that deals with domestic abuse. Um, Besides God giving the government to punish it. We have right here, not biblical grounds for divorce, but biblical grounds for separation. Maybe a few months, maybe a few years, maybe indefinitely which is why contentment is necessary because these are extremely long, painful, often drawn out seasons of suffering. You know, one of the one of the most hopeful and I guess discouraging things about marriage is that there's there's so many things you can control and there's so many things you can't control. Like here's something you can't control. You can't control your spouse's soul and their salvation. You don't have authority over that. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving... Oh, I'm sorry, verse 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You can't control their salvation. But you can control the sacred environment of the family. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Holy does not mean saved. Holy means set apart. Set apart from the world. That there is a sanctifying effect. There's a, a, I would call it a spiritual influence that a believing spouse has on everyone else in the home that often and in many cases can lead to the conversion of other family members, if not all of them, especially if it's the husband who's the believer, statistically speaking. There's a spiritual influence that I would say, I would even say it like this, the more humble and Christ-like it gets from the believing spouse toward the unbelieving spouse, either it will lead to their salvation or it will drive them away to the point they abandon the marriage. Which is what he says in verse 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother's sister is not enslaved. And so he's giving all of this counsel to them because again, uh, there's, there's wrong ideas of marriage and divorce and all these things that are circling around in the church. They're saying, if you're unequally yoked, that's not God's will, so you can get out. If you're not happy, that's not God's will, so you can get out. And Paul's saying in verse 12, if any brother is a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce, divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And someone goes, well, that's, that's so hard. How hard is it to live with a spouse who doesn't love the Lord that you love? That has a different set of morals and values than you have. 
that is a sinner like you, that you are living with for months and years, which is why we must get to this third and final point, marriage, singleness, and faith, and the eschaton. Only those with faith can live like verse 29 and 31 is true. Only those with faith. Uh, let me read this again. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as if they have none. Those who mourn as if they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as if they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as if they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as if they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world. Pay attention to this phrase. The present form of this world is passing away. This is uh, ancient theater language. This is how Matthew Henry describes it, verse 31. The form or fashion is taking from the shifting scenes of a drama where the scene eventually changes, the splendid pageantry passes, and all the things that allured and enticed us now pass away, and we pass to other scenes succeeded by new actors and new scenes. And listen to how Matthew Henry, he quotes a, a, a famous British dramatist. All the world's a stage, and all men and women are merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man, as in his time, plays many parts. And then Henry concludes, if verse 31 is comparing this present world to a play with many players and changing scenes, why fix our affections on what is soon to pass away? How anxious should we be to be prepared for the real and unchanging scenes of another world. Charles Spurgeon, uh, in his 1850 sermon, described this in a gripping way. He, he said, this life is a series of multiple scenes that with each scene passing, it gets more and more real until the curtain closes and another scene opens. And I, here, here's how I picture this. Um, scene one, the first character that comes out onto the stage is what we might call the fool. The fool uh, begins to view life as a hedonist. Someone who says, uh, let us eat and drink and sleep around for tomorrow we die. It's the frat boy hedonistic mindset. He immediately realizes, it doesn't take long to realize, this is empty. This is, this is not the way to live. And he eventually goes, you know what? I think it is. it makes a lot of sense to settle down with one person and to commit to one person for life. And then enters a new character, the married man. And the married man shows up and goes, Man, this is, there's something right about this. And, but life is more than just success in my business and, and getting all the worldly accolades. He says, what I really need to do is leave a legacy for my wife and children. And certainly this man has gained more wisdom than the fool. But what this, this second man hasn't considered is the curtain will close on that scene. And there's another scene coming. And so Spurgeon describes the second scene. He says the curtain closes and the next scene opens and you see a man holding his wife's hand on her deathbed. That is followed by two parents who show up carrying the lifeless body of their deceased child. The man did not factor in the second scene. He lived as if there were one scene. He lived as if his wife and his children were eternal realities. Not passing in temporal characters. Guys, how many people are not prepared for scene two? They didn't think the curtain would ever close. They thought the form of this present world is eternal. It won't pass away. This is the man without faith. He does not take into account eternity. He only sees what is temporal, what is best for right now. Maybe he looks forward to his retirement, his 401k, his future grandkids, but no further than that. 
But the man of faith, Paul says, he's married as if he's not really married. He's doing his business, working his job, living his life as if it isn't permanent. It isn't forever. It's just the first scene. Which may sound like a very odd thing to say because you might think, well, that would cause me to love my wife less. That would cause me to love my family less. I agree with Jonathan Edwards on this, that he actually would say, if you expand your capacities of love to love things that are eternal, that are beyond the temporal, you actually expand your capacities to love the things that are temporal. In other words, here's another way we could say it. There's never a conflict between loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor, your your spouse, as yourself. That's not a conflict. That's how God designed us. Guys, you know I'm. this is truth, is it not? When you love the Lord with all your heart, does, are you not in those moments able to love your spouse better? Do you not love your children better in those moments? When, when you're not thinking in the temporary, when you, when you finally fix yourself, there is an eternal God, this scene is going to move on, the curtain will close, and there is more to come. Whenever that lands on you, you love your wife and your kids much better. I mean, guys, how else can we understand what Jesus says in Luke 14, 26? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. As who will wake up and realize This little scene has an end. The curtain will close on wives and children and parents. And what is more real than this will come. I mean, Jesus warns of this, guys. He warns in Luke 12. He says to the person who says to his soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. And God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, even if it's a wife and kids. And is not rich toward God. That's what Paul's saying. You hear it now? The appointed time has grown very short. Those who have wives live as if they have none, doing business as if they're not, building businesses, gathering wealth and houses and lands. Don't do it as if this is permanent. For, because the present form of this world is passing away. The curtain's going to close. And if that's true, it affects how we relate to our spouse. I... I um, there's a marriage book. You know, you read marriage books, and uh, sometimes you forget everything in the book. Uh, at least I do. And I'll, I'll remember one thing, though. Something will stick out to me, and it'll last and, and, and help me. And I remember this one marriage book. Uh, the couple said something I'd never heard. They said, um, it was, after a fight or an argument or something they got into, they said they realized, what are we doing? What are we doing? In light of eternity, we're going to argue about this silly thing? And they said, at that moment, they just said, we're never arguing again. In light of eternity. And you go, well, easier said than done. Yeah, but if you actually believed what we're talking about, it might have the power to eliminate arguments, at least many of them. That's what he's saying. Your marriage is very temporary and fleeting. How foolish do many arguments become in light of how short your marriage actually is? You know, faith has the ability to shrink many trials and conflicts and make many of them disappear because faith doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It remembers the cross of Christ. Faith doesn't hold grudges and bitterness. It surrenders all judgment to the Lord. 
faith reminds us that our acts of love and forgiveness will not go unnoticed forever. Faith says, even if my spouse doesn't care or notice that I did the dishes or that I gave them that goodbye kiss today that they seem to not care about or whatever the thing, it won't go unnoticed forever. It matters and will affect something in eternity. But guys, here's the problem is that even among Christians, many marriages can't actually get to that point because everything is still about them. Because what really matters in the marriage is me, 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 what I want, what I need. Psychology Today has an article called Why Marriages Are So Difficult to Sustain. And the first and uh, fundamental problem this secular article gives is the modern stress on personal self-fulfillment. But guys, when one person walks by faith and not by sight, by feelings, by personal desires, when one person humbles themselves, that changes things. And look, maybe you say it like this. One can't become a good husband until he knows he's a bad one. One can't be a godly husband until he realizes, so often I'm devilish. One can't increase in fruitfulness in marriage until they look at their branches and see how little fruit is actually being born. That is the way of the kingdom. It's often down before up. It's often recognizing your weaknesses before you can receive His strength. It's wanting what He wants, that undivided devotion to the Lord. And look, um, another book, uh, Gary Thomas wrote a modern classic. I'd highly recommend reading this, but I'll just sum the whole book up for you in, in one line. He's basically saying marriage is about sanctification. It's about becoming like Christ. And I don't want to argue with his thesis. I think he's largely right. I would just want to put next to that. Marriage is not just about becoming like Christ. It's also about advancing the kingdom of Christ. Guys, you've got to have a purpose in your marriage bigger than your marriage. If your marriage is the biggest purpose of your marriage, it's not going to be what it should be. Many of you know Elizabeth Elliot and uh, Jim Elliot. Uh, Jim Elliot wanted to be a missionary in Ecuador, and uh, he felt he might have the gift of singleness. So he had his two-year commitment that he had made to go to Ecuador, be a missionary, and he told... uh, Elizabeth Elliot, before he left, because she didn't feel a gift of singleness, uh, he said, look, I think God will make it clear to us if I just go, and if we're called to be together, he'll somehow work that out. And over the last 70 years or so, if you look at the, the Christian landscape of marriages, many people would point to Jim and Elizabeth Elliot's marriage as one of the ones to pay attention to, one of the significant marriages but why? It was a very short marriage. Uh, was it because that they moved away to Ecuador to live happily ever after? And just focused on going to all the best restaurants and enjoying all the things together, having as many date nights as possible? Was that why their marriage is... No. Their marriage is significant because it wasn't about their marriage. They had a greater purpose. They had a greater aim for why they would actually come together and be married in the first place. The greatest marriages are not those who find their dream spouse who meets all their self-centered interests, wants, and desires. The greatest marriages are those who lay that down for the cause of Christ. Guys, in college, I'm almost done. I gotta tell y'all, I've tried to avoid talking about myself in this series at all or our marriage, but I gotta share this story um, quickly. So in college, uh, I had these feelings for Priscilla that were arising. Uh, and I, I knew her, and, um, and if anybody knew me in college, I, was, I had an undivided uh, desire and devotion to the Lord that I viewed something like feelings or desires for a spouse as hindrances to my devotion to the Lord. So I would go out to this field every night And I would pray, make me single. Give me the gift of singleness, Lord. I don't want to think about a girl. 
I don't want to get married. Because in my mind, I thought only a single person can really have an undivided devotion to the Lord. This is the greatest prayer God never answered for me. <laughs> to, to, to not give me that, uh, that request that I sought heaven uh, night and day for. He didn't turn my heart. In fact, he made me uh, love Priscilla more. And I soon realized, you can be married with an undivided devotion to the Lord. But you need to find someone who wants to advance the kingdom of Christ with you. What, what does it say in Genesis 2? A helper fit for him. But not so they just enjoy Eden, eat all the fruit together, have little dates in Eden. To advance the creation mandate. To do the mission. That's why the helper was fit for him. To accomplish what God had called him to accomplish. And it's essential that we take on this mindset. So purity matters because of undivided devotion to Christ, which is our goal. Contentment is needed because you're a sinner and you live with a sinner. And things don't change quickly. And faith is necessary because this is scene one. The curtain will close. You'll stand before Christ. And how you treat your spouse in this scene one affects the future scenes. I, as we come to the table, I, I hope you'll come with something of a heavy heart, but give it to Christ. Lay burdens, sins before Christ regarding your life, your marriage, your singleness, and that you will remember today He is a merciful Savior and He is a good husband to His bride. Amen? Let's come to the table remembering who Christ is for us. If you're new, uh, we believe this table is for those who have trusted Christ uh, as their Savior. He's become the Lord of their life. They've followed in baptism. Uh, if that's you, please join us. Uh, if you'll be refraining on page two of your bulletin, there's some meaningful prayers uh, that you can pray in this time. Father, we, we thank you for the institution of marriage that is your design. But Lord, we thank you that it is not permanent because it's not perfect. And neither is singleness. We weren't made for marriage. We weren't made for singleness in an ultimate sense, Lord. We've been made for You. And so, Lord, help us to steward our marriages and our singleness for the advancement of Your kingdom and the glory of Your Son. And we pray for more grace and more help and more enabling and more patience in the eschaton, in these last days, before this curtain closes, would You help us, Lord, to honor You in all these things. And to live out these callings for Your glory. We pray all these things in the name of Your Son. Amen.